0: It a be popular a bit... pod of policy for the people. Yeah, that's the most perverted thing I've heard.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, hello and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. Our first week of podcasting is done and now we're trying to keep the hits coming. Um, so to do that, we'd love to hear from you. So please subscribe and review the podcast. Tell us what you like and more importantly, what you don't like. Um, and what topics may be of interest to you. Yeah, did you hear
1: that, Mom? (laughs) Because I know you're the one who's listening.
0: Thanks, Mom. Um, Today we have a special policy pod, as Roberta's calling it. We're going to dig into the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, As always, I'm Matt Kautz, and I'm sitting here with two of my favorite colleagues, Roberta Langer-Kane. Hello! And Brian Vipreck. Hi, y'all. Um, so, today, Roberta, Brian, and I are going to discuss ESSA, its roots, its reauthorizations, and its realities for teachers. So, Brian, Roberta, what is ESSA?
1: ESSA is the Every Student Succeeds Act. Sometimes it's ESSA and sometimes it's ESEA. Do you know what the difference is?
2: ESEA is the old one from the 60s. It's part of the Johnson Great Society. War on poverty, you got it. War on poverty. There we go. Um, So that one, ESEA has been the law for a while, from what I understand, and ESSA is something of an amendment to, or an updating of it,
1: from what I understand. that's an amendment, and then it takes place to begin in the school year of 2017-2018, which is uh, right around the corner for (laughs) those of us in school. (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) I hope you're all up on it, ready to go. (laughs) Yeah, everybody knows what
1: it is, right? And and in particular, um, ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act is what uh, the Obama administration implemented in the in December of 2015, and it replaced the No Child Left Behind Act, which has been sort of the law of the land and the biggest educational signature policy move from the government from the federal government's perspective. Probably since the nineteen sixties, when ESEA was put in forth.
0: Yeah, so I'm just going to go on a little diatribe here, oh. and <laughs> and talk about this history because I think it's important to understand the roots um, of this act and kind of you know people don't really understand that the federal government has not had much to do in the history of American education. It's actually been more of a localized and state based system. Um, But the ESEA, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 1965, was in fact one of the first big moves of the federal government into education. So in many ways, you can view this as part of the legacy of Brown, right? In 1954, schools are ordered uh, or court ordered to desegregate. A year later, not much has happened. And in 1955, the Warren court issues its second opinion, saying that schools have to integrate with all deliberate speed. Right? So like this oxymoronic phrase gives um, local courts and local legislators ability to manipulate what integration means and to take their time. And so what you see in the first decade of Brown is that there's not actually that much integration until you start to have the civil rights movement, which pushes for greater advocacy. And you see that kind of enveloped in the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act and the 1965 Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which uh, coordinates federal government money to schools that integrate. So Mm. if you do not integrate, you can't get that money.
1: Carrot, stick. (laughs) Yeah. Carrot, (laughs) stick.
0: But so at the same time, you're also having what's typically known as white flight, right? People moving out of urban areas, or white people, excuse me, moving out of urban areas to suburban areas Making integration pretty difficult to happen within interdistrict lines. So, how do you perpetuate or how do you create educational equality? Well, you give more money, more money to schools that are serving those with large student populations who are in poverty, um, those who are English language learners who might need additional resources to succeed. Um, so, like long story short. This becomes the way the federal government tries to equalize education. Like
1: trying to level the playing field.
0: Exactly. Um, And so every five years since its inception in 1965, it has been reauthorized. More money has been added. Um, Services expanded. Like in 1967 or 68, English language learners were included, which they had not originally been. Um, And then 2001 is the major reauthorization Mm -hmm. you talked about, Roberta. The No Child Left Behind Act which you know everyone has heard about, probably ad nauseum, but it's actually part of this same trajectory. So a lot of people associate NCLB with standardized testing, and I think we can maybe probe why standardized testing might be a part of this conversation and think about what that means in terms of educational equity. So <laughs> after my long rant, what does ESSA mean now? Um, how does it impact state and district policy?
1: I think one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the biggest changes is that NCLB set very strong and strict standards for performance measurements that were aligned to testing in math and English language, arts, uh, and graduation rates. And they sort of set these expectations with the goal that every student would be able to be proficient at those standards by 2014, Mm -hmm. And starting in 2001, so they said, well, how far do we have to get to get every kid proficient between 2001 and 2014? And they basically chunked that up into, like, different benchmarks and milestones that states had to hit in terms of performance. They said, okay, well, over the next 13 years, which is K to 12, Mm -hmm. right, all of our students should be able to, you know, starting in kindergarten through 12th grade, should be able to meet these uh, performance standards.
2: And from what I understand it, that's all measured state by state, so what's proficient in Connecticut is not necessarily proficient in New York nor New Jersey, and so you've got students just across an arbitrary line, one's proficient and one's not. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if they have the same scores, potentially.
1: Yeah, potentially. And that's where, I mean, a lot of the NCLB, at least, where they reviewed these state plans. So states put up their plans, and they said, these are our plans, and these are our standards, and these are our tests. And they were sort of approved or disapproved to try to create some sort of... um, equilibrium across states, but yeah, every state's still working with their own standards until you have Common Core, mm-hmm. uh, which, which then many states were encouraged to adopt Common Core, and with adoption of Common Core, then their standards were automatically approved, their mm-hmm. Common Core-aligned tests were automatically approved, and um, they were able to uh, receive additional funding through Race to the Top promotions.
0: <laughs> Just to connect back, that you have the federal government... Um, putting greater, I guess, coercion um, into public schooling at this time, because it's the federal government that was determining what the mandates were, what was going to be tested, um, what plans were acceptable, and what they were not. And here's where ESSA kind of changes a little bit to that, although you might argue that there are some more similarities, and that's this power is returned to the states. So states can determine what their measures are, um, what tests they will use with in the confines of the federal government? I mean, maybe you can speak a little bit about that, Roberta, with a little mm-hmm. bit more clarity.
1: Mm-hmm. Signature move there is that the federal government is setting what those benchmark moments are. Mm-hmm. In the Every Student Succeeds Act, we still are going to be monitoring English and math. We still are going to be monitoring graduation rate, progress towards graduation. But now, those benchmark, how much progress um, and how far and what assessments you and standards you're assessing all of that control and power is going to be returned to the states. Yeah,
0: so Brian, I mean, what we're boiling this down to is the difference with ESSA is that you have more state control. Is this a good thing or a bad thing?
2: <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, what I mentioned before about the different states and their different standards, I think we can, um, it doesn't take too much of a, a stretch to to kind of walk that to a point where states could have extremely different standards uh, for their students um, or extremely different even expectations uh, for what their students um, ought to learn. Um, And uh, that could sort of play out along um, sort of content lines, um, Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it could play out along skill lines, but really where it's also possible to see it is to have it play out along cultural lines Mm -hmm. um, where some states would... um, uh, Quibble with uh, parts of a curriculum that don't jive or don't you know align very easily to um, uh, certain religious beliefs. Mm. Um, so it starts to get a little bit challenging here when you uh, start telling people um, what they should teach their children or what their mm. ch- ch- children should know. But then also it gets a, starts to get a little bit problematic too when you have um, uh, states just either either leaving. Uh, bits of uh, information out or adding bits of information in that could ultimately be problematic so I mean it's an open question is it better or worse to have more um, federal control? Um, I honestly don't know I can it seems to cut both ways
0: So I think one of the things that we need to talk about with the policy is like so what what are the implications of this change from federal mandates? to state mandates. Um, And there are some overlaps between ESSA and No Child Left Behind, but kind of the markers are schools schools and districts are now evaluated on English and math testing, which they were before. Uh, There's evaluation for graduation rates or matriculation rates for elementary and middle school. School quality... Also, the proficiency of English language learners in the English language. So these are kind of the metrics that ESSA uses them. So Roberta, how do they use them?
1: Well, the for academic progress, as you mentioned, we're talking not about like generalized academic progress, but academic progress that's marked very specifically by testing in English language arts and math and what tests they're going to use and what... Percentages kids have to get on those tests that is going to now be up to the state, whereas under No Child Left Behind that was determined predetermined by the federal government. When schools couldn't make those benchmarks, they got waivers and and flexibility and things like that. But now states will be able to set their own expectations and their own measurements for testing in ELA and mathematics from grades three through high school, and in high school it's all connected to different course requirements. Um, so. How much we're testing is going to stay the same. Mm-hmm. Where the tests are going to be mostly foc- focused is going to stay the same. What benchmarks we need to hit, that's going to become variable by state. State by state, we'll be able to make those choices. Um, the same is true for graduation rates. Some you know, states will identify what their graduation rate will be or what their expectations will be or what their matriculation rate will be for mm-hmm. middle schools and elementary schools and then getting, a, you know, getting closer to that or farther away will determine school uh, proficiency within the state.
0: Um, I think just also on that testing note that there are states in the union that do require passing of certain standardized tests for graduation, right. so once again, you see testing kind of rearing its head, which we'll come back to.
1: Yeah, and the other area that you mentioned was for English language learners, um, and that's about measuring how quickly students mm-hmm. who are new to the US learn English um, and become proficient in English. And there's only one way to measure that. Um, at least there's only one acknowledged way to measure that, mm-hmm. and that's also through testing. So testing becomes, or I don't know if it becomes, that would imagine that it wasn't before. Maybe testing continues to be one of the primary ways that schools and school systems are evaluated.
0: Yeah, well, I think also to the school quality piece, Right. Testing also can become um, a measure for that. But in a less direct sense, there's also Mm -hmm. testing in terms of teacher evaluation Mm -hmm. is also very much connected to school quality, which if you are a teacher, you are probably well aware of, of the changing um, evaluations in your state and your district. And so in part, that is a mandate um, stemming from ESSA. Um, So kind of given this general overlay What does this mean about the importance of testing related to ESSA? ESSA is testing students to determine the adequacy of a school. And going back to what we had said earlier about this being a compensatory education measure, it looks at specific subgroups of students, those that are economically disadvantaged, those of racial and ethnic minorities, English language learners, as we already said, um, or other subgroups that are deemed necessary by the state. So that means if your school is... Um, affluent, predominantly white, without English language learners, um, and without or with a limited number of students with disabilities, you may not bear the same burden of ESSA that other schools might. Mm -hmm. So this means that schools that have high minority populations, high um, economically disadvantaged student populations bear the brunt of ESSA um, more than other schools. So I guess there's kind of two conversations to have here, and I'd love to hear both of your inputs. For schools that don't necessarily have these subgroups, what does ESA mean for them? And those who do, what does it mean for them? And then we can talk in the nitty-gritty about specific teachers, but mm-hmm. just for schools in general.
1: Yeah. Well... One of the things that uh, I would note is, like, let's take the tenant on L's, right? Mm-hmm. That we need to be making progress for students who are new to the United States to learn English. And that's a, a real value that some people have, and that's represented in the policy. Okay, um, well, it, part of the way that schools are going to be held accountable for students who are else to be learning English is on how many students they have. Mm-hmm. So every state has to set a minimum number of students that then it's going to say, like, if you have 20 students in your school, then we're going to be reporting on uh, how well your students are making progress. If you mm-hmm. have fewer than 20, we're not going to report on that. That's a really important thing to remember. That happens now. That's mm-hmm. not new with SF. Mm-hmm. That's, that's you know, currently, you know, if you have too small a uh, group then those individual students are identifiable, mm-hmm. right? And so the states and, and the federal government aren't interested in calling attention to individual children, but rather representing more aggregate data. So they're gonna set a certain number that's a cutoff that says, if you have fewer than this many students, we're not gonna report out on your data and you're not gonna be held accountable for it. But if you have over that number of students, you will be held accountable for it and we are gonna report on that data. That data. So if let's say that number is 20. If you have 20 students in your um, 12th grade class or in your school, and then your school will be held accountable to how quickly all of those kids are making progress on their tests. But a school that has 19 students, they may, may make similar progress that you are, but that won't be, they won't be held accountable for it. So it's not going to show up in their rating. So schools that have large portions of ELL students are more mm-hmm. likely to, as you mentioned, carry that burden or, or feel the burden of these expectations. And schools who have fewer than that, that, uh, that number aren't going to, it's not going to register at all. They're not going to have any problem. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're serving their ELLs better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means that there isn't, they're not reporting on it. Uh, and I, I think that that's a, a, key, a key thing to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, and so I think this actually ties nicely to the history at the beginning, that this is a means of compensatory education, but what we see in this policy is this focus on testing that doesn't actually take into account things that may impact student achievement. Right. So now I have to think about, what does this mean for me as a teacher? This is something that might complicate how I do my job, might make it more difficult, Um, I mean, how do I navigate this? But I guess that question isn't even just for teachers. It's also for administrators and parents. So what is the advice that we maybe have for administrators that are either at a school level or a district level and are getting these state mandates that are kind of coerced in a way by the federal government to meet those obligations but best support students?
1: Yeah, so administrators are going to be receiving lots of pressure. They have been already getting lots and lots of pressure from their superintendents, from their cities and their uh, states around how their students need to be moving, about what their graduation rate is, what their attendance is, how they're doing on tests. And and a a couple things that are really important is, one, to understand where those mandates are coming from. Mm -hmm. Why are you getting pressure to increase your graduation rate? Why are you getting pressure to, you know, um, focus on testing or buy more textbooks. So if, if they don't understand where those pressures are coming from or what policies or what expectations uh, their schools have on them, then it's going to be really hard for them to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be really hard for them to communicate why they're making those kinds of decisions. Um, it's also going to be difficult to, to understand how they need to make strategic decisions that can favor their school. But if you don't know where your tests are coming, where these pressures are coming from, or what those expectations are, it's gonna be really hard for you to make decisions uh, that are in the best interest of your school. And it's gonna be really hard for you to communicate why we're making these decisions to your teachers. And the principal can't go in and teach every class or inspire every student, or I mean, your, your principals, you're very, very talented and very, very powerful, but you're just one person. Mm-hmm. So. We need to, as school leaders, we need to be helping our teachers and our school communities to really understand the decisions that we're making, how we're making them, why we're making them, so that they can also understand where those pressures are coming from.
0: Yeah, and so, I mean, you very nicely touched on what, (laughs) what administrators can do. Toss my hair back. So, Brian, what are some considerations that you have for teachers, maybe, to consider as they're thinking about ESSA and they're thinking about their school and they're thinking about their students?
2: Um, well, to stick with the idea of the testing and what that means to um, schools and teachers um, uh, I, I think that there's a conversation to be had with uh, students in particular about um, uh, testing as gameplay or testing mm-hmm. as problem solving or testing as discovering the rules of a system um, and that um, by truly understanding the rules of a game or the rules of a system then you understand what you have to do to solve it or Mm -hmm. win it Um, and say, like, these tests are games and every game has rules Mm -hmm. and we need to learn the rules of the game in order to win. And, you know, I would use, like, sports stories about, like, you know, Jerry Rice, the famous wide receiver for the San Francisco 49ers, and how he would drag his toes to stay in bounds. And that was a big innovation. Mm-hmm. He learned how mm-hmm. to stretch the field, essentially, mm-hmm. by knowing the rules. And so I would say, like, now where are we going to drag our toes? Mm-hmm. Um, and we would kind of just try to get that understanding of the game that we all had to play, the game we were all compelled to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was the grading I would do in my class... And then there was the talk of rules and systems and figuring things out. It's a puzzle to be solved, a game to be won, um, or a game to be played. Um, so as to lessen the pressure on students when it was mm-hmm. crazy test-taking time, mm-hmm. but at the same time to actually assess their academic growth and assess their learning authentically within the bounds of my own classroom where mm-hmm. I had a way to actually know them and know them as learners and mm-hmm. see you know, where they were growing. Yeah. So, in terms of teachers communicating to students about testing and trying to um, minimize intimidation, trying to minimize fatigue um, that these tests uh, have that, that students experience, um, there's a, a question or it's a, a straightforward approach of being mm-hmm. explicit about. This is a test. It's only a test, <laughs> and let's see what we can we can do with that. Um, by the same token, I think teachers can have these conversations with uh, parents. Um, a lot of parents uh, have um, uh, are similarly anxious about tests. They're worried about their their children's futures. They're worried about their their results on on these these sometimes very high stakes tests. Um, and I think. Uh, teachers would do well to speak to parents about uh, tests, about what their nature and their purpose Mm. is, what they mean and what they don't mean, um, what's being tested and for Mm -hmm. what purpose. Just a very sort of straightforward and explicit explaining or demystifying Mm -hmm. of what this test is and why is it there and why does my kid have to take it um, so that um, uh, parents can know what's happening and they can help prepare their kids accordingly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I'll just piggyback on that, because I think in some ways this is a two different conversations for teachers. If I'm teaching English or math, right, I'm bearing a lot of the intensity of this pressure that's coming down because my subjects are being tested. Yeah. And so to those teachers, I can only recommend kind of what I did. And that's similar to what you did, Brian, right? Acknowledging that despite my reservations about the standardized testing, I, I can't make it go away for that student at that particular moment so finding a way to help gain the system while also making sure I'm delivering a comprehensive education that's Mm -hmm. really building sound fundamental skills literacies and, and creativity for the arts teachers for the elective teachers for the science teachers for the social studies history teachers I think open conversations with your administration saying hey I know this is where the pressure is i want to help mm-hmm. i will in this way mm-hmm. that being said i still need this for my content i still need this for my discipline so that your principal knows that you're helping with what the school is going to be evaluated on but you still have that autonomy as a teacher to teach your content and not deprive your students mm-hmm. of the importance mm-hmm. of what's in your content mm-hmm. um, But people who often get lost in this conversation are parents and community members. And I don't mean get lost as in they don't know what's being said, but schools uh, or teachers and administrators will leave parents out. So what kind of advice can we give parents and other community members um, about how to handle ESSA, its implications, um, and once again, to best support students?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think being involved in your kid's school is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, Knowing your students, teachers following through following up with the curriculum and when your teachers are being like open and are sharing information with you not just letting those letters that come home in the backpack or those emails sort of wash over you and be like mm-hmm. yeah yeah they've got it but really you know, paying attention engaging having conversations with your teachers about what your kids are learning that's i think first right being involved at that local level between you and your kids school and your kids teachers um, but as we, you start to understand, as a parent, these are the choices that my teachers are making, or that my school is making on behalf of my kids because of these policies. Mm-hmm. I think really the real power that parents have is as a voter, mm-hmm. and making sure that they understand the difference between the choices that my school is making mm-hmm. and the choice and the 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 paradigm that my school has to follow through on because of either district or statewide policy. And that's where paying attention to school board meetings, Mm. paying attention to citywide policies around education, and really speaking up to representatives is so important.
0: I think just one other thing that I'll add as kind of an addendum to that is really paying attention to state policy because as we've outlined earlier, that's what's going to be Um, influencing a lot of these decisions that happen, and I think that's incredibly important when you think about which populations, as we talked about earlier, are kind of most burdened with these testing scores, and so what is the state doing in this compensatory fashion to really make educational equality? If it's not, that is something, as Roberta said, you have a voice and whether it's voting, um, petitioning a particular district or state to kind of ensure that equity. Um, so we're getting a little low on time here. So I just, I, we've had kind of a wide ranging discussion. What are some final thoughts related to ESSA um, that are going through your minds that maybe haven't been said yet, but you think would be helpful for educators or those interested in education? I think, you know,
2: one for me is just the big, big question of, What's going to happen with ESSA right now? And what's the the implementation going to look like? What changes are going to be made with the new administration in office? Um, uh, In general, um, uh, Republicans favor more state and local control over federal control. Um, Federal control was increased um, under the Obama administration, particularly with Race to the Top because I'm pretty sure that in the race to the top, the Federal Department of Education had access to more money than they've ever had before. Yep. And it's the power of the purse. Um, and so if there's yep. less money to go around, and then perhaps there's more of this um, devolved control, um, I, I wonder what's, what it's going to look like in a year or, or two. Yep. Um, it's a big, big, big question mark right now.
1: Yeah, I, I just want to echo that. I think that we want to all be prepared for a lot of changes over the next few years and some that we're going to notice right away and some that we're, we might not notice for a while. Um, it's up to states, right? So, so depending on your state, things might change very drastically or they might not hardly change at all. And then the implementation of what this looks like, you know, um, yesterday was the de- deadline. Was the first deadline for states to submit their plan to the federal government. There's also a deadline on September 18th, 2017, which is the beginning of the school year in which ESSA is supposed to take effect. So sometime between now and September, states are going to be submitting their plans for review. The question between will be what criteria will the um, the federal Education department use to evaluate those state plans? That's one question. Um, will any state plans be rejected uh, either for being too aspirational or for being not aspirational enough? But the other thing that I really want to say is that decisions that we make about education today do not affect our education today. Hmm. <laughs> they impact our education and they impact our community in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And and that's something I think that's really important to consider. So if I just break that down for half a second. Let's say the state implements their plan in September. Mm -hmm. Or they right they implement their plan in September. So they set up the whole new policies. Well you're not holding a lot of people, you can't hold a lot of people accountable the very first year. So the very first year, you're just figuring things out. Mm-hmm. And then it takes you three or four years between you got everything figured out and then now teachers are really teaching with a new curriculum or with the new standards or you know, with the new testing assessments. And then you move kids through that process for four or five years, five or six years in order to see if it's really taking. So by the time that we really see the impact of what these changes have be- have made on students, they're going to be graduating from high school. So kids who are starting kindergarten now, and um, by the time they're grad- graduating from high school or going into college, the kids who are in elementary school now, by the time they're graduating from college, that's when we're going to see the impact of these policies. We're not going to be able to see it right away. We're going to be able to see it in 15 or 20 years. And that's where my big push is when you're thinking about, like, as I'm, as I'm voting, as I'm writing my, um, my representatives, as I'm participating in the public dialogue around education – that we have to remember that it cannot be a partisan conversation, that we really have to be thinking about our children. We need to be thinking about our children today, and we need to be thinking about the kind of world that I want to live in in 20 years. And for some of us, you know, we'll be old and gray, and and others will be just sort of like coming into their own. But that's that. those are the stakes. It's not about the next three to five years. It's not about the next eight years. It's not about one presidency or another presidency it's about you know a score <laughs> it's that 20 years that 30 years that's when we're going to see the impact of these policies
0: yeah I, I think my final thought um, has to do with how, who has control but also for teachers and the ways that they need to think about this I, I think number one you have to think about what's right for your students and more importantly, maybe even, you need to think about how your state is going to support or not support students. Yeah. As I said at the beginning, this is a compensatory education measure. meant that money is supposed to be used to create equality, but that doesn't always happen. And I think looking at health care over the last eight years is a really helpful way to think about this. So for those of you who don't know, States had the option to expand Medicaid in their states, help bring down costs of premiums um, for those who were in poverty in their states. Um, Some states did this and some states did not. And when states did not do that, that meant that those who were in poverty, for them to get the health care services that they needed, they were exponentially more expensive. And I think you can see an analogy with states having more control of what is the measure of educational proficiency. If that number is determined to be something that is attainable for all students, there could be progress there. But if that is set so far and above beyond, then all schools have the ability um, to get to within a reasonable amount of time frame. This policy could be something that doesn't actually bridge inequality but perpetuates inequality. That's right. And so as an educator, you have to pay attention at the state level. What is happening? Why is it happening? And not to be too much of an advocate here, but you need to advocate for what you believe in and whether that's communicating with parents, working with other teachers, to make sure that the tests and policies that are put in place at your state are what's best for your students and not the beliefs of some political ideologue.
1: That's right, and that's why this is the policy pod. (laughs)
0: Um, So thanks for joining us today. Remember to check out um, all the links in the show notes for All Things ESSA and visit our website, cpet.tc.columbia.edu, and remember to subscribe, like, and or comment on the podcast. On behalf of Roberta, Brian, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in. Bye. Bye, Mom.